You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church. Hope you guys are well this morning. We are really thankful and grateful that you are here. Uh, As you're getting seated, if you have a Bible, go ahead and take it, open it up to Mark chapter 10. Uh, We will start in verse 32 today. Uh, My name is Rick Bowers, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Redeemer. And this morning, I have the privilege and the honor of walking through a particular passage with you that I hope is deeply challenging for us, but I hope it's also going to be really encouraging for us and encourage our hearts and our minds towards following Christ. If you've been able to join us for the past couple of weeks, you know that we're now back in the gospel of Mark. We spent a lot of time in Mark last year. We took a break near the end of the year, walked through a few other things, and now as 2023 begins again, we're back in uh, Mark's gospel. Church history regards Mark's gospel as a lion of a book. Mark writes with this unrelenting pace. It's just a really quick um, gospel, and he is focusing intently on the actions of Jesus Christ. And Mark is really working hard to communicate the reality that the kingdom of God is breaking into our world through the life and ministry of Jesus. And that's what we're seeing in his gospel. And last week, Pastor Jordan walked us through Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, and we met the rich young ruler. And we were able to see and learn, as Christ pointed out, that there there is no treasure on earth like following Jesus Christ and calling him Lord of our lives and giving up everything for him. Well, today, we're still alongside Christ and his disciples in an area just outside Jerusalem. And as they travel, he's teaching them. He's continuing to teach them more and more about the kingdom of God. And they're still learning. And they're still trying to figure out who is this Messiah? What is he really all about? And that's a very similar place to where we are this morning. It's not only the disciples who are continually surprised by Jesus. Not only do the ways of the kingdom contradict the ways they think... The ways of the kingdom also contradict many of the ways we think, ways we've grown up thinking, maybe ways we've been raised in, ways that have shaped us from the culture around us. But as the kingdom of God crashes into our world through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the ways we live and think and believe, those ways are challenged. And we have this to decide. Will we follow those ways... Or will we follow this king? This is the question Mark confronts us with continually in his gospel. And it's what we're going to be confronted with today. Would you bow your heads with me as we move into our scriptures? I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, as the psalmist says, it is hard for us to do good. And we are faced with a text today which challenges us in that way. Calls us to service calls us to put others first. It's a hard thing for our hearts and minds to be wrapped around. I just ask that your word would illuminate our hearts and minds to the realities around us that we may not see, that we may not realize. 
I ask that you would convict us through your word and encourage us towards life and joy through your word. God, would you hear our cry? Jesus, would you be our guide? And Holy Spirit, would you impart these truths to us? We love you and we trust you. Amen. I'm going to reread for us verses 32 through 37 as we get into the text. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So we come onto the scene with this very determined Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. And the disciples are, fo- are following him, and they're amazed at his resilience and his pace and the way he is uh, unrelentingly moving towards Jerusalem. And there's a crowd that follows as well, maybe a little afraid, still unsure what to make of this Jesus of Nazareth and all the things that he's doing. And Jesus takes his disciples aside and he begins to talk to them and he tells them something that he's actually already told them before. He tells them that his purpose in Jerusalem is to die and to be raised again. And just like they have on previous occasions, the disciples still really don't get it. Let's look at the question that James and John ask. They say, Jesus, will you do anything we ask of you? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus says. Let us, me and me, James and John, let us, when you get in your glory, can we sit on your right and left side? Can we rule with you? Another gospel writer, Matthew, will even say that somebody else was in on this request with him. Nobody other than their mom. So Matthew's gospel tells us that this was a family affair, that they were all coming to Jesus, and they were asking this of Jesus. So mothers in the room, let this be an encouragement to you. Maybe you've made a little mistake here and there, but at least it's not recorded for all of biblical history, that you pleaded with the second person of the Trinity to let your sons sit with him in power. Look at what's happening here. Let's think about it. This is an outplaying, this request is an outplaying of what the disciples are thinking. The world has formed them into thinking a certain way about authority and status, and they're asking of of this, they're asking for this from Jesus. They want a seat in glory. The picture here is of a political king in rule with rulers on his right and his left ruling with him. But they're misunderstanding Jesus and his mission. And misunderstanding Jesus is what's actually been happening in our past three stories that we've been in in Mark. People come to Jesus for certain reasons, but they're not coming to him for what they really need to come to him for. If you think back with me for a moment, we saw the Pharisees come to Jesus with their trap. But what they did is they misunderstood the scriptures and the heart of the law. 
And then last week, we watched the rich young ruler come to Jesus with his good works, but he misunderstood his own brokenness and just how sinful he really was. And now the disciples bring to Jesus their ambition and their desire for status, but they've misunderstood what God truly values and what he truly cares about. Their self-seeking ambitions are driven not only by their own sin, but the way the world has shaped the way they think and the way they act. Let's move to the next portion of our text to see a little bit more on that. Starting in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom it's been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and called to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them." So the disciples have gotten it wrong. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus says to them, "Can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized?" Jesus knows what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. It's the reason he's headed there. And it's not for political reign. Jesus is going to face persecution and death. And his language here communicates that. But it also carries shadows of something else. Something the disciples can't really understand yet. As we read the scriptures, we look back on this event. And we can sort of see it unfold through the biblical narrative. With the disciples being present in it, they can't see it all right now. Jesus knows that once he gets to Jerusalem, he will drink deeply of and be immersed in the cup of God's wrath against sin. The language of the cup that Jesus uses here is all throughout the Old Testament. It's the image of God's wrath as the contents of a cup. The Old Testament talks a lot about the pouring out of God's wrath upon sinners. The Messiah, Jesus, is saying, I'm going to drink this cup. I'm going to be immersed in its contents. I'm going to be baptized in the wrath of God. And he's going to face great persecution. Can you do this? He asked James and John. And they answer, we can. Now at this point, we want to give the disciples a break. We already established clearly they don't know what's going on. And their response says they're at least ready to die for the cause. They're ready to, to follow this Jesus wherever he may lead. And no matter what persecution may come, they're willing to, to do that. And they will do that. They will face extreme persecution. Jesus affirms it here in the text. And, and your scriptures in your hands do too. Acts 12 records the death of James. And in Revelation, we find John exiled in slave labor on the island of Patmos. But look at verse 40. Even persecution, even martyrdom, isn't what guarantees you a position of value in the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them this. God the Father alone has prepared those places. We can't earn them. And while Jesus doesn't tell us who might get them, 
We could think back to our lesson last week where we learned that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You can think about Jesus in Luke 14 where he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everybody who humbles himself will be exalted. God's placing of status is not like ours. God's idea of ambition is not like ours. Glory in God's kingdom is not the same as glory in this earthly kingdom. And Jesus is using the ambitious request of the disciples to teach them this as they're going along the way. But wrong thinking is still clouding their minds. And Mark turns our attention to the other 10 disciples. And we've got James and John asking Jesus the question over here. We've got the other 10 over here. What's going on with them? He says they're upset. They're indignant. They're annoyed. They're offended. They're upset that James and John and mom have beat them to this ambitious request of power. Jesus has had enough. So he rounds them up and he calls out their misplaced ambition in verse 42. And how does he do that? He calls out their misplaced ambition by pointing to the people in power all around them, the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ones who flaunt their power, who are oppressive with their power, who are uncontrolled and who wickedly exploit the weak, who take their authority like a hammer and they wield it upon whoever they might be over. Jesus is pointing this out as if to say, think about it. Is this the power that you see around you? Is that the power you want? Is that the power you really desire? Do you think that power is what's valuable in God's kingdom? The disciples' ambition was affected and shaped not only by their sinful desires, but it was also shaped by the world around them. And our ambitions, yours and mine, are shaped in very much the same way. There are certainly ambitions of power that plague our sinful hearts. And if we want to see that in big and grand ways, we can look at news headlines. The war between Russia and Ukraine, waged by ambitions of power and status with a desire to control other people. These type of ambitions are easy to see. They're big and they're bold and they're, it's world news. They're ambitions that have been long unchecked at lesser levels. And those lesser levels, well, that's where you and I operate day in and day out. None of us in this room have seen our ambitions play out on such a grand scale, but our own ambitions play out every day in our own lives. They play out in our families. They play out with our friends and our relationships. They play out in this church community. Let's follow the path of ambition for a moment. The Oxford Dictionary defines ambition as a strong desire to do or achieve something. And that something is usually a thing we really want, something we desire. And God's word is clear that the desires of our heart are often deceitful and corrupt and sinful. Even the Christian has sinful desires because of indwelling sin in our life. Paul says in Romans 7, I keep doing the thing I don't want to do, and I don't do the thing I want to do. So this tells us that the desires that drive us to be ambitious, they need to be checked because very often they're fueled by sin. And when our ambition is fueled by sin, we're operating according to the ways of the world around us and not according to the ways of God's kingdom. Bishop Stephen Neal, an Anglican missionary, puts it this way. He says, 
I'm inclined to think that ambition, in any ordinary sense of the term, is nearly always sinful in ordinary men. I am certain that in the Christian, it is always sinful. The word ambition comes from a Latin word meaning campaigning for promotion. And that's certainly what the disciples are doing in our scene here. And it's what we do in a million ways every day in our own lives. We crave social visibility. We really want to be seen and we really want to be heard. We crave approval. We desperately want someone to affirm us. We crave popularity. We crave recognition. We want to be known by other people. We want to be better than the people around us. We want to be of a, of a higher status. Sometimes that's why we walk into a room and we may immediately compare ourselves to everyone around us. We may think, oh my gosh, she is so much prettier than I am. Or, oh my gosh, I'm so much prettier than she is. Or we may walk into a room and we may think, oh, that, that guy over there has got it all together. He's a good dad, a good husband. He's good at his job. And I feel like such a loser right now. These are the conversations we may not speak, but we have them in our heads and our hearts all the time because we're campaigning for promotion. We want approval. We want acceptance. Campaigning for promotion is why we often offer our opinion to other people without being asked. Because we're trying to establish our position. It's why we feel when we're, in, when we're in conversation with some people, a little bit of a competitive edge pop up. Oh, you did this? Well, I did this. Oh, oh you went there? I went there. You can look at our posts and our humble brags on social media. They're dripping with deep desires of approval. And for others to raise us up to the glory we think we deserve with likes and comments and shares. Ambition, as John Calvin comments on this passage, is the bright mirror of human vanity. But some of us look in that mirror, and it may not reflect power or self-promotion. It may reflect something else. If ambition is a strong desire to do something, think about it. It's to gain whatever we want. And sometimes it's not power that we desire but it's pleasure. In 2022, there were two popular articles released about ambition in our current age. The New York Times released an article titled, The Age of Anti-Ambition. And Time released an article titled, Ambition is Out. Both of these articles paint a picture of our culture. They make the argument that most people in America have lost their sense of ambition. The authors describe how from nearly every industry imaginable, people are leaving their jobs and never coming back. They're seeking a new sense of freedom for themselves, the articles say. They've lost their ambition. A quote from one of the articles reads this way. It says, First came the great resignation, followed recently by the phenomenon of quiet quitting. Many surveys have also pointed to a sense of malaise and fatigue sweeping the American workforce, apparently culminating in a common desire to do less. Now, I don't think it's all bad. 
that maybe we've become disenchanted to the ideas of power and status being um, the thing we need most. But it's simply not true that we've chosen a better path of enlightenment. We've simply chosen a different path of selfish ambition. We can be selfishly ambitious about anything, anything we desire. I once stayed up from midnight on when I was in high school so I could be at a video game store in time to get the new Xbox that came out. I know people who camp outside of new Chick-fil-A stores for days so that they can get a year's worth of free chicken. If ambition is a strong desire to do anything, then anything can be that something. And ambition can drive us to seek power, like the disciples here, or it can drive us to seek pleasure, as might be the case for some of us in this current age. It is possible for ambitions for pleasure to keep your entertainment binging high and your time in prayer low. It is possible for ambitions for pleasure to lead you to spend more time seeking fun and leisure than spending time fulfilling your role as father, mother, husband, wife, worker, friend. It is possible for ambitions for pleasure to drive us to click one more inappropriate photo, just one, or to linger a little too long in that conversation with a coworker. I can be ambitious about any pleasure under the sun. I can be ambitious about leisure, ease, comfort, rest. We even have a new self-focused language of how we deserve rest and pleasure. And maybe sometimes we do, but maybe sometimes we're also abusing it. And maybe the picture of ambition in society is changing a little. For decades, the picture of ambition was a person in a suit, climbing a corporate ladder to success, leaving behind their family and friends and dedication to God, compromising their beliefs. But maybe now it's a new image for some of us. Maybe it's the image of us in our comfy pants, stretched out on the couch with a smartphone in one hand, a remote in the other, while loving and serving God, caring for our family and friends, and pursuing Jesus Christ is on fire in the kitchen. Ambition isn't out, it's simply changed. The heart of men is constantly ambitious about its own interest, whether power, like James and John, or pleasure, like many of us. And here's the problem. We keep thinking that these things are going to fulfill us. We keep thinking they're going to please us. That's why we keep chasing them, whatever our ambition might be. It's never enough. We need someone to set us straight in our thinking. Look with me at verse 44. Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. These eight words of Christ could be tattooed on the heart of every Christian. But it shall not be so among you. The worldly ambition that you see around you, it shall not be so among you. The endless pursuit of promoting yourself it shall not be so among you. Jesus tells them, if you're my disciples, you're not operating according to this world. If you're my disciples, you're going to replace status and power and pleasure with service. You're not going to desire to be elevated above everyone else. In fact, you'll desire to be below everyone else. 
You're not going to desire to be lording authority over people. Instead, you're going to use that authority to care for and serve people. Greatness in God's kingdom is defined by thinking of yourself less and thinking of other people more. Jesus is saying that greatness in the kingdom is not defined by followers, titles, influence, clever ideas, finances, winning arguments, or how many people know your name. It's defined by serving others. And let's be honest. We can make a law out of this too, right? There's a way we can read this passage and we can say, well, if I just serve people all the time, then God's going to think I'm great. And that's not what Jesus is saying either. Thinking that way makes us a Pharisee. We create a new law that saves, that saves us. And don't miss this. Jesus is not giving them a new law to follow He's pointing right at the desires of their heart. The whole passage is about ambition, which is driven by the desires of our heart. Do we desire to have authority and power and pleasure and leisure like the world around us? Or do we really desire to love and serve other people? I'm going to guess that there's not a single person in this room who wakes up on a Monday morning, stretches in their bed, and says, oh, I can't wait to go sit at my desk and check my emails and serve my employer and all those people I work for. There's probably not a parent in here who on a Saturday morning lays in their bed, waking up to the sound of their children fighting outside the bedroom door and says, oh, I can't wait to serve those little bundles of joy today. (laughs) Of course we don't think that. Our hearts are selfish, they're sinful, they're wicked, We're constantly wrestling with our ambitions in a direction that benefits us, that brings us what we want. My God in heaven, we need help. Who will help us? Look at verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus has defined godly ambition to the disciples, and soon he will show it to them. There's a lot in this one verse in Scripture. Here's where I want us to focus. The very last part of this verse, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, persecution and martyrdom were on the radar of the disciples, They would have known that those were possibilities at this point. So for Jesus to say that he might give his life would make sense to them. But he doesn't just say that. He doesn't say, I'm going to give my life for the cause. He says, he'll give his life as a ransom. Now That's an interesting word for us in our Bible. If you grew up like me on 80s movies, you might have learned what a ransom was from that. I feel like growing up watching those movies, there was always a hostage Somebody who took them hostage, demanding a ransom, and some hero coming to save them. It was a wonderfully exciting and action-filled childhood. 
And the disciples would have known this word too. But they would have known it from Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, where laws to govern God's people would talk of payments of ransom so that there could be some kind of freedom for a person who's held in bondage or who has something against them. But how on earth would this foretold Messiah, this promised king, how would he be a ransom? How would the promised king of Israel be a price paid to release a captive? He could only be that if there was someone in bondage, someone in slavery. But who could that be? Could it be us? The ones constantly chasing our own ambitious desires. When Jesus tells them this, he doesn't just show godly ambition, but he shows them the deepest ambition of God. For the sake of his glory, he's going to ransom to freedom those held in bondage. God will ransom to freedom the sinner who keeps seeking power and approval and acceptance and authority but can never get it and can never get enough. God will ransom the sinner who keeps seeking pleasure and comfort and ease and leisure but can't seem to get enough. God will ransom to freedom the very men who just wrongfully asked him for power and he's going to ransom to freedom you and me. I once heard ransom defined this way, a decisive and costly intervention on behalf of someone else. Let me say that again. A ransom is a decisive and costly intervention on behalf of someone else. I like that definition. I think if we use it here, it helps us see. It helps us understand that Our desires and our ambition are very often sinful. And because of our sin, we have broken God's law and we have separated ourselves from him. And we have become captive to our sin and to our endless sinful pursuits. And a captive has no power in and of themselves to free themselves. No authority whatsoever to obtain their own freedom. We need someone else to come in. We need a decisive and costly intervention on our behalf. Someone from outside this captivity to rescue us. To give us the freedom and redemption we so desperately need. Because this chasing of power and status and approval and acceptance. It just never seems to end in our hearts. And Jesus says, it's me. I am that ransom. I am the decisive and costly intervention on your behalf. I am the one who will take your punishment, who will drink the cup of my father's wrath against sin on your behalf so that you can be free. And not only will you be free, but you're actually going to be given those things you desire. Just not like you expected. That seat of glory that you want, as the Son of God, that's mine. And I'm giving that to you. The acceptance and the approval that you're chasing after day after day, well, that's mine too. And I'm giving it to you. The eternal pleasure that you can't seem to find, I've got it. 
and I'm giving it to you. I am serving you. The ambition of Jesus is to please his Father. He tells us this, to do his Father's will. And the will of God is that through the faith, through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we get to gain all the heavenly benefits that Jesus has as Son of the living God. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And in Ephesians 2, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Paul says we will reign with him. We will be raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. And the rest of the New Testament is rich with these kind of promises for the believing Christian. Our worldly ambitions will always, always fail us. But these promises will not fail. And that acceptance and status and approval that we're so ambitious to get, They're satisfied in Christ Jesus. We're accepted by God through Christ. We're approved by God through Christ. And we have a status that's been given to us as sons of God through Christ. All of that is ours because of the service of Jesus and his father-focused ambition. The ambition of Jesus Christ stands in stark contrast the ambition of the disciples. Their focus is upon themselves. And if we look at Jesus, his focus is not necessarily upon himself and it's not on them. His focus is on his father. We talked earlier, John Calvin said, ambition is the bright mirror of human vanity. I believe here, Christ is calling us to stop looking in that mirror and instead to focus on the living God who's offering us freedom and calling us to live like his son and as a citizen of his kingdom. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need you. You've offered us so much through your son And even as we hear these words, we struggle to believe them. And I just ask that your spirit would come and minister to us even as we sit here. The deep truths of these words. I ask that your spirit would convict us of those places in our lives that we are chasing things that are not your things. I ask that you would even make brighter to us and more joyful to us and more clear to us those things that are of your kingdom. Can we taste and see that you're good? Can we do that, Father? Would you give us the strength to do that? Thank you for loving us, for pursuing us, for offering us freedom. We love you and we trust you. Amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.